I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Autumn is a glorious time in the garden. Watching as the leaves turn from glossy greens to burnt oranges and reds is a sight to behold. But winter is coming. And though you might not have noticed it, the wildlife in your garden have likely been busy squirrelling away food and creating warm shelters, all to prepare for the cold months ahead. And while we don't need to be gathering acorns and twigs, there's still plenty to be doing before the frost sets in. From what you can get growing now to how you can build a moth haven, we've got you covered with some top tips for the weeks ahead. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barza. Did you know that here at the RHS we have a veritable army of horticultural advisors ready and waiting to answer your gardening queries? Though autumn is a very busy time, we managed to nab an expert to share some wisdom and advice on a few overlooked gardening jobs that you can get cracking on with now. Hello, I'm Jenny Bowden and I'm one of the horticultural advisors at the garden at Wisley. We answer members' inquiries and we answer questions on all aspects of gardening. We're there all year round to answer your gardening questions. Autumn is a time for perhaps tidying up, sweeping leaves and some maintenance type things, but it's also a really exciting time for planting new things and thinking of new possibilities and Perhaps you've been looking at gaps during the summer or on your terrace or patio, courtyard and thinking, I need something to put in a pot there. Well, this is the time to go out and choose. Something like an Acer is a very, very lovely idea for a courtyard garden or even as a specimen tree out in the open garden. They come in all sorts of sizes. There's a maple for every situation. The choice is endless and the autumn colour is stunning. So you should be able to go to the garden centre now and actually see some of the autumn colour beginning to kick in and get one to suit your situation. It's a good time to plant now because the weather is cool and it's moist and the plants are going to be able to get off to a really good start, probably earlier than you think in the spring. So when there's still nothing showing on the top, the roots will already have started to move into that lovely new soil 
well before you're starting to see those shoots come on the trees. And it also means that when the roots are establishing themselves, you're going to build up much better resilience. They're ready to go for the whole rest of the season the following year, and they're going to be a little bit more resilient. So if you've spotted that gap on the terrace and it's earmarked for a little bit of interest, now is the time to seize the moment and buy yourself that Acer. One of my favourites is Sangu Kaku, which has lovely young red foliage and kind of golden leaves that go a limey green as the season progresses. It's not the smallest of the Acers, but it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. For many years, Bloodgood is another lovely one, perhaps more for the open ground, but it's still not a massive Acer. There are so many to choose from. Bear in mind, the more dissected the leaf is, the more frilly the leaf is, the more susceptible to drying out and wind and scorch. So the more entire the leaf is, the more resilient it's going to be. And that's it really, just make sure that you're planting at the same level that it was in the original pot and you're gonna enjoy your acer for years to come with a little bit of maintenance and plenty of water. So just because the days are drawing in and it's time to sit by the fire a little bit perhaps, doesn't mean that it isn't a really, really good time for planting produce. It's a very good time to be planting garlic there are specific varieties that do better in the autumn. There's a range of soft neck garlic and hard neck garlic that can go in at this time of year. And indoors, you can be growing little salad leaves and pea shoots. You can germinate on the windowsill throughout the year, even in winter. You can buy bags of the dried peas and just soak them overnight. And then you just just plant them every few days and you can have little pea shoots on your salads right throughout the year. It's so worth getting those garlic cloves in the ground at this time of year because you get in there to harvest just, just a little bit earlier. And as you're planting, you can almost smell that garlic bread cooking in the oven that you have baked yourself using your own garlic mixed in with that lovely, lovely butter. You can almost smell it as you're planting. Whether it's planting new plants, whether it's getting things done in the vegetable garden, whether it's sweeping up the leaves, there are so many things to do in the garden. It's not always encouraging to go out there but there are also the most beautiful autumn days when you can be working with the colors of the shrubs all around you and you can just feel that you're investing for the following year it is a really lovely time to be out there it's pouring with rain where i am i've been looking at this poor hydrangea that needs to move it really hated the summer i am going to get my wet weather wear on i'm going to go move that hydrangea and i'll see you later Thanks, Jenny. As Jenny mentioned, just because it's autumn and winter is coming, it doesn't mean that we're absolutely unable to plant more things in the veg garden. Jenny mentioned garlic. That's an excellent crop to grow in the garden. And she also mentioned pea shoots. They're a great way of raising food on the windowsill if you don't happen to have a large vegetable garden. 
as well as garlic, you can pop in shallots. Shallots are relatively small, but they are incredibly easy to grow. And like garlic, they mature early next summer. So you'll have lovely shallots to chop up in your winter dishes. So shallots are well worth growing. Preparing for the cool months ahead isn't just reserved for gardeners. Throughout the animal kingdom, up and down the country, bats and frogs and snakes are all beginning to start hunkering down in preparation. And our flighty friend the moth is no exception, slowing down and overwintering to reach the sweet nectar of summer. But who cares about moths and what do they even do beyond eating through old coats? Answering this question and schooling us on the role of the moth in our ecosystem is one wildlife expert. My name is James Lowen. I'm a writer by profession and I write about all things to do with wildlife, conservation and travel. I've been interested in wildlife, but primarily birds, since about the age of four or five years old. As I grew up and as my horizons expanded, I started looking at not just birds, but mammals as well, and then occasionally butterflies, dragonflies, but I absolutely resisted looking at moths, because moths were boring, moths were dull, moths were brown, and they all looked the same. And you never saw them anyway, except when they got in your hair, or, or they ate your carpets, or something like that. So moths, moths were pests, I was anti-moth for decades upon decades. And then a friend, then a friend did something very, very sneaky. He was going along with me to go and see some orchids in the countrysides in Buckinghamshire, and he brought along with him a moth that he had caught the night before. And when I looked at this moth that he took out of a little plastic pot in which he was temporarily housing it, I swooned, I fell in love. It was a moth called a poplar hawk moth. She was gawkily angular, she was amazingly shaped. She looked a bit like Darth Vader's TIE fighter, but in insect form. And she was sweetly furry and she was absolutely enduringly placid and she was covered in the most glorious silver tones with a bit of rust going on here and iron filings drizzled all over her. And she was just a sight to behold. So there was me who had been anti-moth for decades but loved every other kind of wildlife. And yet suddenly the scales fell from my eyes when I saw this creature and I realised that actually moths might be worth looking at. The main thing about moths is that they are everywhere. Hundreds of species live around all our gardens, unseen, typically. They occur in every habitat, from the highest mountains to the wettest places, to coastlines, to woodlands, to wetlands, to broadlands. And there are around 40 times more species of moth in the UK than there are butterflies. So we've got about 2,500 species of moth in Britain, compared to around 50 or 60 so butterflies. And that's, that's remarkable in itself, that this is a whole cadre of the ecosystem that sort of exists in great abundance, at least great variety, perhaps not quite abundance, perhaps we can talk about that at some point, but a veritably unseen, very strange it is. So when I was, I don't know, five or six years old, we used to drive around back from the pub of an evening with my parents through the country lanes of South Devon. And I remember vividly there being lots and lots of flying insects around and some of them were moths and some of them would splatter onto the windscreen. And when we got home, my father would have to kind of clean the windscreen three of these moths. And apparently in the 1950s and 1940s, this was a phenomenon that was effectively known as the moth snowstorm. It was a blizzard full of moths, so moths were everywhere. 
But what we've discovered, what scientists have discovered, is that moths are in real trouble. And this is a widespread phenomenon. It's across the whole of the UK, although it does vary throughout the country. It varies with habitat as well. It varies with types of moths. But the headline figures are that within the last 50 years, we have lost a third of our larger moths. So there are a third fewer moths flying today than when I was born. There are four times as many species of moths whose populations are going down than going up. In terms of these larger moths, it's roughly one in five species is either in real or potential risk of extinction at the national level. That means a real risk that we could lose them. And it's happening everywhere. For example, it's happening even in our gardens. There's a species called the garden dart, which is a small brown moth. It's not particularly attractive. I will never catch it in my garden because its decline has been so precipitous over the last 50 years or so that in an average 10-year period, its population is more than halving. And that's really worrying. It's a real concern, particularly because their habitat requirements are so widespread, as the word suggests, garden. It can occur pretty much anywhere. And if a species that is not dependent on a particular landscape or a particular habitat or a particular plant, but can survive pretty much anywhere, if that's in trouble, then it suggests that there is something worrying going on with our natural environment, with our countryside, uh, and perhaps even in our gardens too. Moths are wonderful, they're beautiful creatures in themselves. They're also remarkable. There are moths that disguise themselves as wasps to avoid predation. There are some that conceal themselves from their adults as twigs. Some even can camouflage themselves as bird poo to avoid predation. I mean, what self-respecting blue tit or grey tit in your garden would eat a Chinese character moth if it looks like a bit of an excrement that's come out of the bottom of a robin or something like that? So in themselves, they're remarkable creatures. They're also beautiful. There's a whole variety of colours. So people think of butterflies as the colourful insects of our gardens and wider environment. But actually, moths are even more colourful. But they're also important. They're important for ecological reasons. So first up, they're important because they get eaten. Without our moths, our bat populations, our cuckoo populations would be even more threatened than they are already. Blue tits, for example, are estimated to eat roughly 35 million moth caterpillars in every year. So those blue tits in your garden really depend on moths. But there are other benefits too of moths in the ecosystem, things we're only just about starting to understand. So for example, three studies across the British countryside have revealed that up to 45%, so nearly half of all moths flying around at night, are carrying pollen around the countryside. And for our wildflowers, for our horticultural crops, for our gardens, that's really important. So we think of bees as pollinators, and they're wonderful pollinators, but moths, moths are the night service to our countryside. If you have a garden, there are many things you can do to try and reverse the decline in moths. Quite simple things, although perhaps not necessarily intuitive for a gardener. So many of us like rather neat gardens, and certainly my wife does, but I've encouraged her to leave wild areas. So for example, the concept of no mow may. Can you leave your lawn unmowed for a month to try and let some of the grasses and some of the other plants flower and encourage some pollinators? That's a great way to help. 
I did a, a moth reveal at a famous garden in Norfolk, but the head gardener there said, if I could give you one piece of advice, he said to all the assembled people, is try and use less chemicals on your garden. Try and use less pesticides, less herbicides. And so there's plenty of evidence that the decline in moths, particularly in the southern Britain, is associated with the application of chemicals to agricultural land. And there is evidence that even the application of fertilisers to land causes direct mortality, i.e. directly kills moth caterpillars. So if you can try and minimise the amount of chemicals that you use in your garden, you'll be doing moths and other wildlife, all insects, the blue tits that feed on the moths and beyond, a great favour. So if you only do one thing to help Britain's moths, why not plant fuchsias in your garden? A, they look spectacular, but B, they're wonderful for the caterpillars of the elephant hawk moth, which is one of the most beautiful moths in existence. It's bright pink, it's large, it's related to the moth that inspired me to get into these amazing creatures. And if you can attract this moth, then what else can you attract? If you can invest some time in making your garden a mini nature reserve, it doesn't need to be much, it just needs to be a little contribution, then you, individually, personally, can help reverse the decline that's going on nationwide in these most remarkable, most misunderstood, most inappropriately unloved species. There's much more to moths than meets the eye and much more that you can do in your gardens to help moths without changing very much of your everyday behaviour. To hear more about James' year-long quest to see Britain's rarest and most remarkable moths, pick up a copy of his book, Much Ado About Moffing. We'll leave a link in the show notes. James's comments about moths and headlights is interesting. As a child, I remember being driven through the countryside and swarms of moths appeared in the headlights. You don't see that nowadays, which I think must be indicative of a decline in the number of moths. Some people say that it's that cars are more aerodynamic now, so you will get fewer on the windscreen. And other people have not supported the evidence for a decline in the number of moths. But overall, I think we are right to be concerned. And it's not just moths, it's insects too. The biomass of insects is enormous and it supports other wildlife like frogs and birds, as well as having providing pollinator services. It moves seeds and it prevents build-up of dead plant material. So having a healthy population of insects is absolutely vital. October is many things. It's the perfect time to get all manner of plants in the ground, from bright red aces to wildlife-friendly grasses. It's also the spookiest season, ushering in high holidays from Halloween to bonfire night. But October is also Black History Month, and we wanted to do something to celebrate and recognise the rich history of this community here in the horticultural world. Which is why we headed into the capital to hear about one gardening initiative that is taking on contested history and encouraging new dialogue using public art and permanent plantings. My name's Harren Morrison. I'm an artist and writer based in London. I'm Antonia Cooling, and I'm a garden designer. Today is the formal opening of a new public artwork called The Anchor, The Drum, The Ship, which comprises three flower beds. The work is part of a response and initiative from Brent Council to think about the complex and contested histories of the site. And so these three flower beds, in my mind, raise questions around migration, coloniality, maritime histories, belonging and renewal. 
Britain was involved in the slave trade from 1562 onwards, and as the centuries went by, it became an integral part of British society. And this is an area that is often airbrushed out of history. So investigating contested history means that we need to reveal what was going on with regard to the slave trade. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister, was a very good guy, did lots for working classes, for women, improved lots of conditions for people. But his father was one of the largest slave owners in the West Indies. And the slave trade was abolished in 1807. Slavery was abolished in 1833. And following that, it was decided that slave owners could have compensation for the loss of their property, in inverted commas. And Gladstone, the prime minister, was in favor of this because obviously his father would get a big payout. In fact, he got one of the largest payouts of anybody. And so the whole name Gladstone is tainted with the slave trade. William Gladstone, the Prime Minister, did later in his career do a complete 180 and he said that slavery was the worst abomination that man could do to man and he actually cut off ties with his father. So you can see how complicated it is. So the idea is that rather than renaming, which could lose the contested history actually after a couple of generations, you might forget why the name is different now. If we keep the name but do an art installation like this, it opens dialogue and reveals elements of the contested history that are associated with this park. We've seen in the last few years a lot of debate around statues and monuments especially that take a kind of classical form and suggest a certain kind of permanence through their material implies a kind of permanent hero worship of who they represent. I feel there's something more humble and temporary around using a garden. It can evolve and reshape and grow into something that isn't planned and that becomes metaphorical for how we might want to think about social contracts and history itself. From the outset, I really needed someone with that specialist knowledge of plants to complete the work and think, how can the flower symbolism be another layer of meaning alongside the symbolism that the larger shapes themselves already offer. So the planting in the within the three shapes is mainly dry garden planting because the site is very challenging. It's very exposed, it's very dry, there's no water on site. So we've found a way around it now and we're hoping that nature will help us. But most of it is dry garden planting. In the ship, my idea was to sort of represent rigging within a ship. There'll be a Melianthus major, which you know grows to about 2.53 meters or something. There are two fennels fore and aft of that. So they will become three masts. And then there's lots of verbena bonariensis, which we know works. It's a bit of a go-to, but it's brilliant. A lot of people who don't know about plants are very drawn to that plant, aren't they, in particular, because it's so strange the way that it forms. But it's great because it will pad out those masts with further rigging and ropes and that kind of thing. And amongst that are lots of grasses, tall ones, Deschampsia gold tau I've used. So those tall plants will waft in the wind and that gives a suggestion of movement. And then the other element of that shape is that I've put in a few prickly plants. The reason I've done that is they represent the sort of emotions that contested history can elicit because it's hard for people to deal with contested history. Obviously, those whose heritage was affected by the slave trade, but also those people who feel that the told history that they know is being messed with. So the prickly plants 
I've used Oliaria macrodonta and Circeums, Atropurpureum. They represent these emotions that contested history can elicit because from a distance everything looks fine and harmonious. And then you come close and you realize that it's, it's hard to grasp. I hope people will come visit it and reflect. And the great thing about using a park installation to address the contested history of a green space is that people come to a park very regularly. So in their own time, at their own pace, they can digest the message that we're trying to put across and simply come and reflect, talk to each other. People are so interested and that's what we wanted. It's a living artwork and say how it looks now is not how it will look in April or summer and different flowers will flower at different times. And like history itself, it's resisting being static. Thanks to Haran and Antonia. I've been involved in community gardens for the RHS and I've found that gardening brings people together, encourages them to speak about their common interest and experience of gardening and recognise each other's humanity. Digging into the ground, getting muddy and growing fantastic produce beyond your wildest imagination is a feeling I want everyone to experience. And hopefully the more people feel welcomed, the more we'll all get to share in that feeling. Well, that's about it for today. Autumn, well, it's bittersweet. Sweet because I'm digging up lovely root vegetables and winter vegetables. I've got fantastic fennel and celery, all of which has perked up enormously since the late summer rains. And I'm picking apples as well, and my shed is full of stored potatoes and onions, which is a very nice feeling. But sad, of course, because winter's just around the corner and all my hard work will disappear. And I'll have to start again next year, but that's gardening for you. So time to reflect and also to plan ahead. But that's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, happy Black History Month and enjoy the last days of October. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. 
Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>